0: A podcast one production. Krishna Das is one of the world's most prolific musicians and spiritual teachers. He has been called yoga's rock star and his nine albums have sold hundreds of thousands of copies. He layers traditional kirtan with instantly accessible melodies and modern instrumentation. He's done private sessions with Madonna and Sting and both performed and been nominated for a Grammy. Krishna Das says love is what we are. We don't get it from somebody. We can't give it to anybody. We can't fall in or fall out of it. Love is our true being. In this heartfelt conversation, Krishna Das and I discuss the devotion for his guru, his battle with depression and the power of love.
1: Following my heart has led me to the experience that real love really exists in this world and that we can find it and that we will find
0: it. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Krishna Das has written three books, including Chance of a Lifetime and Flow of Grace. In this episode, you will learn the true meaning of soul, love, friendship and devotion. Your music has been embraced by millions and we know you as Krishna Das, But can you take us through the younger years when you were born as Jeffrey Cagle?
1: Oh. Well, you know, I once had a car that was called a Jaguilay. So it was half a Jaguar and half a Chevrolet. (laughs) And the reason was because Jaguars never started and they never ran well and the electric system was really bad. So what they did was they took the engine, the transmission, and the electronics out of out of the Jaguar and put in a Chevrolet engine and transmission. So the car worked great. So I was born as a Jaguar, but you know, I became a Jaguar. <laughs> the engine and transmission have been changed, the electrical system has been changed, and whatever karmas I was born in with into this life with are in the process of uh ripening and coming to fruition and uh hopefully bringing me closer to real love.
0: So how how was the younger years for you? What how was the school days?
1: Horrible, absolutely. Very painful time. You know, I I, I was very on one hand I was very uh, outgoing and very friendly with a lot of people, very popular but inside there was this constant feeling of what is going on and just who am I where do I fit in i don't I don't feel at ease or at home anywhere and uh, there was a lot of depression, a lot of a lot of a lot of painful stuff. And it wasn't until I got off the plane in India for the very first time, and in those days, you had to walk to the terminal from, the, uh, from the, the, the runway. So the minute my foot hit the runway for the first time, hit the ground in India, this wave came over me and I realized that I was home and that I had never felt this anywhere before in my life and now finally i was home so all those years before were very very difficult it was like it was like i couldn't understand there seemed to be no purpose in life there's nobody seemed to know anything everybody was running after nonsense and 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 being being very busy being themselves and nobody knew anything you know it was a real admit- and what that means is that some part of me knew mm. that there was something to know, you know, and I wasn't really in touch with that part, but unconsciously that, that part of me was looking out and saying, what's going on here?
0: So what led you to India in the first place?
1: Well, I had come across a few books when I was just getting started. Uh, one book was the Gospel of Ramakrishna. One book was autobiography of a Yogi. and one book was a book about Buddhism. And one of the one of the lines in the book said that the Buddha taught that one's enlightenment is up to oneself. And I read that and I went, wow, because when you're 16 years old, Nothing is up to you. Mm. Everybody's telling you what to do. You know, there's rules, there's all this stuff. Nothing is up to you. And the, the statement that my state of mind, my liberation was up to me, was really like all the lights went on. It was an amazing feeling. And then, you know, those other two books were about India, more about India. I mean, Buddhism was also from India uh i just read those books and i went whoa i just felt i i could see the whole scene in my uh in my uh, in my mind you know i could see uh it all made sense to me it was i could feel it so uh a few years into it uh i met ramdas and uh The minute I walked into the room where he was sitting up at his father's place in the winter of 1968, 69. uh, The minute I walked into that room without a word being spoken, without eye contact, without anything, I just knew all of a sudden that whatever it is I was looking for was real. And it was in the world. You could find it. And this was the beginning of the rest of my life. That was the first knowing that the path was real, and that you really could find something in life that made it, that put everything in the right perspective.
0: What was it about meeting Ramdas for the first time that made you think that?
1: Well, in retrospect, what I I met Maharaji, I met my guru through Ramdas. Because he was, he had just come back from India from his first trip, and he was just uh, immersed. He was just really deep in there with Maharaji and his presence, and Maharaji was just coming through him, and it was powerful. Just, it was not conceptual, and it wasn't about anything he said, but the vibe was extraordinary. You know, it was just whoa, and. By Maharaji's grace, uh, I felt it. And uh, I spent about a year and a half traveling around with Ramdas. We got very close. And then after that, that's I went to be with, uh, with the old man.
0: So you then went to India and you met your guru, Maharaji. Can you take us through the first time you met him?
1: Well, like I said, the first time I really met him was when I met Ramdas, mm. and from that point on, I felt Maharaji all the time. He was always here and he was in my dreams and he was, uh, all I had was a little black and white picture of him. But when I dreamt of him, it was full color and, and he moved around and he, it was, you know, and of course I didn't know anything, but when I finally met him in the body, it was exactly like the dreams were. So that was whoa, hello, the Twilight Zone. You know what's going on here. And the funny thing, the first time I met him, it was it was amazing, but it also was confusing because I had felt him everywhere, and now I'm looking at this body wrapped up in a blanket, and I'm thinking. How does this work? How does the whole universe fit into this guy? You know, it was like, it was a moment of like, it was like my mind just stopped for a minute. And then I, he was so sweet and so kind and so loving that all those kind of thoughts just disappeared and I was right in there with him, you know. Um, Very powerful. You know, he's not a teacher, he's not a, a, a book writer, he doesn't give lectures, uh, he doesn't, everything he does is under the radar, so to speak. Everything he does is beyond your, your. like he changed your life. Not only doesn't he ask you, but he doesn't even tell you, he just did it. It just happens. And you don't find out till later when you look back, and you go like, Oh what so it is very unusual situation uh, we're not these days that those type of beings don't seem don't seem to be making themselves available to people they were always here but from what i've heard and seen about the, the saints that are around these days giving teachings and helping people it seems like it's they it's a different world these days that's all no not to judge anybody, but there were these Ananda Maima, Deorah Baba, who was over two hundred and fifty years old when I met him, uh, Maharaji, other beings that I met in those days, you know, seem to have temporarily uh hidden themselves from us. But I don't know.
0: I remember Ramdas saying that when he was with Maharaji, there was no time. Time absolutely yeah. dissipated. What did you do when you spent time with him if he didn't teach you as such?
1: Yeah, Wenzula, I don't want to get personal, but you must have fallen in love at least once this life. What did you do when you fell in love? You hung out, you looked at each other. You, you, you caressed each other. You laid around together, etc. And that's what it was. You, we were just in this love, and we were just sitting there. There was nowhere to go. He didn't demand that we were any special way. In this, in his temples, he said, "When you come here to this, to be with me, you should feel like you're going to your grandfather's house. Nothing is required." you don't have to do seva you don't have to be good little boys and girls you're at home you're at your grandfather's house the most love you'll ever get that's the way it is there it, it wasn't a an ashram or a temple in the for us in the strict sense of the word it was where we went to be with him and nothing there was nothing required he he loved us loves us as we are he doesn't expect us to change or demand us to be good or he it was being under this umbrella of love immersed in it and there's no compunction to do anything except enjoy and express that love through singing chanting just being hanging out Uh, it was so extraordinarily wonderful that it's they're hard to explain to people because you don't have to do anything. It's all about being in love the way as your own self. And he knew everything about you, everything. And he showed you all the time that he knew what you were thinking, he knew what you had done, he knew everything. And he never, ever judged or threw us out, Uh, he, he, he loved us as our soul loves, you know, and it, it, it was such a, uh, an incredible time to be with him that way. And we didn't have to do anything, but we would, we, out of the fullness of our hearts, we wanted to chant, we wanted to sing, we wanted to, do puja, and we wanted to learn Indian stuff, but it wasn't because we had to. It was because we couldn't find a way to express this, to let this love pass through us. You know, we we had to. It was uh, still that way, really.
0: Have you ever found that love since he passed?
1: He never went anywhere. Mm. I've, i but in truth you know, when he left, when he died, when he left the body, I had a very hard time for a long time because I had spent a lot of time, two and a half years I was with him and I was completely attached to his physical body. And, and when that was no longer available, it was very hard for me because where was I going to find that love? And it, Took me over twenty years to uh, recognize that I had to find it in myself, and the only method or way that I had to reconnect with that love was chanting, which he had encouraged us to do. He never told me go forth and chant. You know, it wasn't like that. He never said anything like that. But I recognized that I had to chant if I was going to find his hand again. I had let go of his hand. But he had always said, once I take your hand, I never let go, even when you let go of mine. And I had let go. And in order to reconnect and find his hand again, I understood that I had to chant with people. That was the only way I had. If I was going to make it, that was the only way I had to make it. So.
0: When did you learn to chant?
1: You just sing, you know? You just... In India, of course, I sang along with the Indian kirtan and chanters because we weren't, you know, that's what you did. They were singing, so we sang along with them. So the basic form of... of kirtan was that's how I kind of absorbed that but and when I came back to America when I first started to sing with people I sang the melodies that I had learned in India but you know I'm a kid from Long Island New York so and I grew up with rock and roll you know so over time my Long Island samskaras kind of started to manifest through the chanting, and the chanting gradually changed its form and became musically more Western. But it's still the mantras, it's still the names of God. But it, the music is not Indian music, and but it's still basically the same form call and response back and forth. But, but you know, nobody was doing this uh, that when I started, really, not the way I was doing it, and I had nobody to ask. I just, so I sang what I like, you know? Why not? Why should I sing what I don't like? (laughs) And once again, it's important to to remember, and for me too, that this was my spiritual practice. This is not entertainment for me. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody else's experience. I'm not trying to do anything to anybody or for anybody other than share my practice, which has been so helpful for me. And the people who come to sing with me are part of that practice, just like I'm a part of their practice. So uh, if I'm not doing my practice, if I'm worried about what they're experiencing, then it's not going to work. It's not going to work for me and it's not going to be good for them either. So the point is that together we enter into this practice of chanting and we help each other and and we, we create, together we create this uh, beautiful space through which grace can flow to us, all of us together.
0: What do you think was some of the greatest learnings you acquired from your time in India?
1: You know, Well, first, I mean, obviously, the the greatest, most powerful um, situations was the time with Maharaj. but that encompassed a lot of different things. For instance, there were times that we used to see him in devotees' houses, and we would meet these families of devotees, and... I, I never met families like this, you know? And I became very close with quite a few of these, three or four anyway, very close with these families. And I was just like a family member. And it was such an education and such a, a joy to be a part of these families because... They were functional families. Who knew something like that existed, you know? And there was so much love in the family. No one was afraid of being thrown out of anybody's heart. And you could say anything. You could be yourself. You didn't have to hide. It's completely different than the house I grew up in you were allowed to be who you are and they could fight with each other and yell and get angry and it was allowed you know you were allowed to be you it was amazing Uh, uh, it's it was unbelievable and i learned so much seeing how they all related with each other and how they related with me and how they were in Maharaji's presence whatever they were doing we're talking about families that have been with him for like 20 30 years 40 years really deep in that presence uh and how devoted and what what love and devotion really looked like in daily life it was powerful very powerful So, to answer your question, you know, I saw that it was possible to be, to live in the world in a good way, which growing up in New York, like I grew up, I never thought that could be a possibility. I always felt that I was born, I I didn't fit anywhere. And the people around me, even the good people, Didn't want the same things I wanted, but I didn't even know what I wanted. But when I was in India and around these people, in their houses, seeing how they went through the day, how they treated each other, it was so wonderful and so liberating for my heart.
0: Why did you leave India?
1: Oh, shit. He threw me out. (laughs) He looked at me one day after two and a half years, he said, You go back to America. You have attachment there. I I said, Baba, I'm just learning how to speak Hindi. Too bad. You go back. So I had to go back when my visa was up a couple of months later. Uh, I had, there were so many desires, so many unfulfilled desires in me, so much stuff, so much mind stuff, so much emotional stuff that I was just avoiding by being in India. Now he kept me there on purpose. He, 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 he sent me to his devotees to get my visa extended. He, he made sure that I stayed and he kept me there. But then at some point he saw that now it's time for you to go back and deal with your stuff. That's exactly what he said. You have attachment there, you have to go back. And, you know, I didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but that was 48 years ago. And every single thing that I have gone through in the last 48 years up to this second is exactly what he was talking about. And it's my work to keep, transforming and releasing and bringing myself back into that presence every time my stuff takes me out of it. And I could not do that in India. Uh, It's only through personal relationships and, and the relationship with the world and your everyday life that you get to see all your stuff. And if you don't see your stuff, you can't let go of it. So... The, the so he sent me back to uh, to uh, to do that work and uh, that's what we're doing.
0: Your chanting has affected the hearts of millions of people but when you chant where do you go?
1: I get asked that question quite often in one form or another. And there are short answers and long answers. Let's put it that way. The medium answer is that um, I just sing. I'm doing my practice. And the practice of chanting involves paying attention to the sound of the mantra of the name that's being sung. And every time you notice that you're not paying attention, you simply release that thought or that emotion, and you come back to repeating the sound of the name, and that's the whole practice. There's no mystery here. There's no secret practice. That's the whole thing. You repeat the name again and again and again, and gradually you, you give yourself more fully to the practice. What you're... What happens when you're doing the practice is simply something to let go of. It's not your job to be evaluating or uh, judging or clinging to a particular... You might have a nice feeling, right? So you notice it, but you come back to the sound. You don't push it away. That's the key to the whole thing, you see. If you're pushing things away, that's... That's not the point of the practice. The point of the practice is to recognize that you've been lost and now you're back. And then you dedicate yourself again to hearing the sound of the name again, again and again. And if you're really paying attention, you'll see that you can't count from 10 to 1 backwards without thinking of a million other things. And so if we can't do that, How can we penetrate into our own being and and recognize our inner reality, which, which is like the sun always shining, but the clouds of thought and emotion are covering it right now. And we're lost in those clouds. So by repeating the name, we're turning ourselves again and again towards that feeling within us that is our reality and what we experience on the way in is not really that important so when you ask me that question the answer really is that i don't know <laughs> i just don't know you know i i if i was paying attention to that then i wouldn't be paying attention to the name like during during like two hours of chanting like I might be aware of a lot of different things. But by the end of the two hours, I don't remember anything like that because I've let it go and, and it's dispersed into the atmosphere. And what's left is a, uh, a more relaxed, deeper feeling of, of being here, of just simply being at ease within oneself. And that of course that disappears very quickly too.
0: Why is the repetition of the holy names in the chants so powerful?
1: Well, you know one time one of the one of the first times I sang in LA publicly this guy I got a review in the LA Times, and the reviewer said, "Well, you know the guy looks like a dentist he said <laughs> <laughs> And then he said, and, you know, the, his, his singing is so repetitive. <laughs> At least he was listening, right? He said, but it actually felt kind of good, he said, you know. Um, what they say is that these names, these divine names or names of God, are the names of our own true nature. They're the names of the, the indwelling presence within us, Are that the divine presence within us. We say divine to just uh, distinguish it from ego presence, but it's not divine like, you know, oh, you know, lights and camera up in the sky. It's, it's divine because it's love. You know, so these are the names of that loving presence within us. So through the repetition of those names, we move ourselves more deeply into our own hearts. And gradually, but inevitably, the presence within us is uncovered this way. Because they also say that the sound of the name is actually the sound shape of the divine, of God's. So, when you say Ram, Ram is actually here, but we don't perceive it, we're not aware of it, we don't feel it because we're just lost in our stuff. So Maharaja used to say, go on, sing your lying fake Ram Ram. Go on, one of these days you say it right one time and the real Ram will come. So we're practicing the, by, by, by continually coming back to the name continually reminding ourselves to remember again and again we move more deeply into our hearts now if we don't have a practice that we add to our life we there's nothing that brings us back we're just lost in our daily drama all the time and there's nothing to come back to right so we add a practice to our lives and You might spend some time in the morning, repeating the name. That will be with you all through the day. It'll come back to you in your head. And you'll have a minute of, oh, there's that chant. And you may stay with it for a second or two, and then you'll be gone again. Over time, that name will keep bringing you back from the dreamland that we live in. And gradually, we we start to feel more at ease just being here, regardless of what we're doing we can be busy and be present also. So, at least that's what they say.
0: For me, when I discovered your music quite a few years ago, it was it was a type of of music I'd never listened to before and it absolutely Me neither. Just, it absolutely (laughs) blew me away straight away. Mm. I feel like, you know, when I was putting this question together before we met today, I was like, how can I best express what it was like or what it is like? Mm. You know, sometimes you feel that your soul wants to be somewhere else, Mm. wants to be back in that higher state with the divine. And a lot of the time we can get there through meditation or this or that. But I feel when I listen to your music that it gives me a sense of home. It gives me a sense of feeling feeling like I am complete in the body when sometimes the soul feels uncomfortable in the body.
1: Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah.
0: And, I mean, that is so unbelievably powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's all blessings, really. Uh, this is all... When you in the same way that i felt maharaji when i met ramdas this is what i feel when i chant this is what people feel is really his love his presence which is home because he is he's he's one with the universe he's uh, he he's the living presence the, the way i see him is that he is that living presence within us that guy wrapped up in a blanket that was one form of him but his other form is that love that lives within us and when I chant I'm chanting to move more deeply into that love that's where I want to live uh, so and I, I I think that's natural for everybody really we all want to be home and it's it's a wonderful. Extraordinary feeling of blessedness that we even know that that exists, you know, that it's possible. Really extraordinary.
0: How do you choose love over fear in your everyday life?
1: Well, one of the feelings when we were with Maharaji physically, it was that everything's okay. Everything will always be okay. This is this is the way things really are. Regardless of what happens in the world or in my life, I'm going to be okay. That I am okay. That's the, what we kind of uh, you could say we, we were infected with that kind of uh, un- feeling. And so um, through the chanting and. Uh, you get more used to, you know, when you're chanting, you're training your mind mm-hmm. to let go of whatever it's attached to or identified with in the moment. So you sing, and then you notice you've been thinking about, oh, what am I going to say to Krishna Das tomorrow? Okay, Ram, 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 Ram. Oh, what? I don't know. I don't want you know, I want to ask him. The right, oh, Ram, Ram. You get, you, you start to notice you're gone, and you come back. So that movement of freeing, of being freed from thought or emotion or, that's, or dreamland, that continues to work during the day. So when a huge thing happens to you, you're not totally wiped out. And if you are totally wiped out, it may not last as long as it used to last. There's a, there's a processing going on all the time inside of you. Part of you is turning towards that place within. Regardless of what happens out there, regardless of what happens with the body or the mind or the thoughts or the emotions, there's a processing going on. Because you know why? Because that's, not, that's home base. That's, that's actually where we live. If we really lived out there, this could never happen. But actually, we live in here, in ourselves. And it's the stuff that pulls us out of ourselves. And whoop, it lets go, and we come back home. But it's very difficult to recognize that being home without practice. Uh, worldly people, most people in the world, they never know they're here for a minute in a whole lifetime. So it's, uh, it's a great blessing that this is even a possibility for for us, you know. Uh, We don't really appreciate it enough. We don't have enough gratitude for ourselves even, uh, not to mention the blessings that we get from great saints. So, you know, it's, uh, the answer to every issue is, repeat the name go back to chanting and allow allow it to pass you know allow that moment or that feeling of being gripped and controlled and held in a nasty emotion allow it to just disperse because it will disperse it might take a while but if, if you if you try to push it away it just you get stuck to you more the releasing is the is the key
0: the 22nd of December 2019 we lost Ramdas one of the most beautiful spiritual teachers How was that for you
1: Well I had been together with Ramdas for 50 years Uh And uh, we had gone through every possible type of relationship with each other over all the years. And this last 20 years or so after the stroke, we got very, very close and kept getting closer and closer and closer. And when I was there, well, I go to see him in Maui two or three times a year. And usually we'd wind up just sitting together for hours without a word being spoken. And I recognized that we, we had, that we understood that we were, we were at one in this space together and that we were communicating silently and wordlessly and, non-conceptually, that we were in that space together. And uh, there was just a a tremendous absence of nonsense, you know. And uh, I went to see him uh, uh, the the day I was leaving, which was about uh, a week or so before he died. I packed my bags, put them in the car, and was going to leave for the airport. And uh, I went up to see him. He'd been in bed now for three days, and he was never to get out of bed again. He stayed in bed, getting weaker and weaker as the days went on. So I went up to say goodbye, and he was lying on his back, and he had his eyes closed. And I walked up. And I just leaned over him, you know, over his face and his eyes opened, and he burst out in the biggest smile that you've ever seen. It was like the sun that, you know, and I just smiled and he looked at me and I looked at him and it was he just said, have a good trip. And I said, it's been pretty good so far. And we just looked at each other. And that moment was absolutely, totally perfect, complete. It was like the bow, tying the bow on the package. It was so beautiful, so beautiful. And I can't say I don't miss him. I miss him. because, And the thing I miss the most, more than anything, I used to be able to make him laugh, Mm -hmm. really laugh. You know, he'd be sitting there because he was in terrible pain all the time he really suffered and he never complained very few people. I mean, the people who took care of him knew what he was going through. And I also knew, but he never complained. So to get him to laugh was he would explode in laughter because, and we just had one time we were sitting together for many hours and we were talking a little bit and, uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to record. I'm going to record this. And uh, and what should I call it? And he said, call it Dick and Jeff's Journey to Soul Land. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was an amazing being. You know, what all the transformations that he went through in his life and his his incredible desire to live in, in that love all the time just kept pulling him out of any type of egoistic identification or personality stuff i i used to tease him i say you know you finally become who we thought you were 40 years ago and he would laugh you know he would laugh so yeah i miss him but i it's hard to you know there's like this country song that i saying how can I miss you when you won't go away? You know, something like that.
0: <laughs> Where is home for you spiritually?
1: You mean on the physical plane?
0: Mm.
1: Or <clears throat> India? Northern India, the mountains. The first time I went to India when I I couldn't believe the feeling I was having being up in the hills, the foothills of the Himalayas. It was like deja vu at 24 hours a day. I just, everything was familiar. Everything was, uh, it was extraordinary. The people I would meet, everything was so extraordinary. Uh, I Either I, maybe my previous incarnations were there, who knows what I don't know really anything about that, but so familiar, so at ease there and so much at home, all of India, but especially up in the north in the mountains. Uh, Just put me down anywhere and give me a little rice to eat and I'll be happy.
0: When was the last time that you cried?
1: What time is it? (laughs) Ten minutes ago? I don't know. I cry all the time.
0: Yeah.
1: I cry all the time. There's so many different types of tears. There's there's tears you cry out of self-pity. There's tears you cry out of self-hatred. There's tears we cry out of frustration with ourselves. And there's tears we cry about the way people treat us. But there's also tears that we cry when we see other people suffering. And when we, we recognize that not only can't we do anything to help them, but they also can't do anything to help themselves. It's just a terrible feeling that, you see, I, I mean, not even to mention what's going on now. Around the world, where everybody is like uh, is totally uh, uh, feeling victimized by the social situation, the pandemic, the change in the lifestyle, the change in the in the in in making a living and the, the, all these things that that you know, people with no homes, people with no place to go, it's amazing. It's just it's so the, the, this this the 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 scope of suffering is so extraordinary that any moment you think about it, your your heart just crumbles, you know. So but you have to keep going. One has to keep doing what one does the best one can and and hope. That we can uh, at least we're trying to have as good an effect as we can in our own little circle, you know.
0: What's been the most spiritual experience that you have ever had?
1: You know, uh, at, I don't. I don't have a lot of big experiences, you know. Where like, like you know, the lights. All the sun comes out and the lights are shining and the gods are flying around, you know. The, I, the, I'm from New York. That doesn't happen to people from New York, you know. Uh, but really, in terms of real spirituality, like someone, a friend of mine said, he said, it wasn't that when we were with Maharaji, we loved him. It was that when we were with Maharaji, we loved everybody. That's real, spiritual. It's not about states of mind. It's not about samadhis. It's not about bliss and ecstasy. It's not about those kind of things. It's about the oneness of love that is this world, that is this universe. And all of us are trapped by our stuff. But when we do touch that place for just a moment, that's real. That's... Mm. that's that's when we're all together in it, you know. Maharaj used to go like, you know, and we what are we getting busted for? You know, he'd go like this. You know, is it something I did or something I'm thinking about now, or something I'm thinking about doing, you know, gonna do. So he would go like, we said, Maharaji, what does it mean? And he would go like this. I said, what does that mean? We say. Many names, many forms, all one. You know, the bottom line is that we're all part of one huge being. Mm. But we think we're separate. And so we act that way. So if we no longer, if those thoughts no longer arose within us, You know, when I was going to kill myself, I was having a nervous breakdown in the temple right there with Maharaji. And I was thinking about jumping in the river, you know. He looked at me and he said, what are you going to do, jump in the river? Ha! And he laughed, you know. And I thought, well, you know, the river was like six inches deep in the dry season. But I thought if I got my head under a rock, it might work, you know. He said, you can't die. You can't die. Worldly people don't die. He said, only Jesus died the real death. I went, what? What? Because he never thought of himself. The, the, the thought of I, me, 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 never arose in that being. He only had love and compassion for all beings. He was one with the universe. That's the real death, which is real life, living in love 24 7, 365. So. Yeah.
0: You know, I interviewed this uh, Kabbalistic rabbi and he talked about when he was with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who is this famous rabbi in New York, who they also mm-hmm. looked at as being, you know, a saint. Or a Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting because he explained the exact same thing that you're explaining when you were around Maharaji, that there was just like this overwhelming feeling of love that there was no presence of ego and you just loved everybody when you're in the presence of that of that person
1: mm. but the next question is how do you maintain that how yes. do you stay in the presence and that's what we're talking about that's what chanting is for mm. to enter into that presence within yourself and be able to over time, really live in that place all the time with all the time. That's the point of it all. That's why these great beings manifest in the first place to show us, bring us into the room where love lives, but we can't stay. We can't get through the door. Our heads are too big. You know, we can look in and see it all, but until we, our egos are gone. Our so-called egos are gone. Uh, We can't live there. So let's, Yeah.
0: What's your greatest hope for society today?
1: I just hope that the level of suffering decreases and that the amount of love in the world increases and that people will treat each other the way they would like to be treated. You know, that guy, you know, he said that, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If we could do that. Just that one thing, immediately, this whole world, there wouldn't be a problem in it. Everybody would be fed. Everybody would have a place to sleep. Everybody would be taken care of. We would stop destroying the climate and the the earth. Everything would, it would be heaven on earth. However, earth and heaven, they call it heaven for a reason. They call it earth for a reason. This is the... This is where we're in school. This is where we learn to be, try to be kind to others and ourselves.
0: When you look back at your life, everything you've done and you've achieved, what are you most proud of?
1: I'm most proud of that Um. I followed my heart and I've done, I've tried to do what my heart told me I had to do, like when I went to India and, when I started chanting with people, that i've I've always tried to listen to my heart as much as possible. Uh, I won't say I've been successful very often, but I've followed other parts of my body than my heart too, you know, but uh, following my heart has has led me to 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 the experience that real love really exists in this world and that we can find it and that we will find it so i think that's the most i mean that's the only quality i have that's of any use is longing to be in that love you know that's that longing is I don't know, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe it's a 2. But at least it's there. I have that longing to be in that love. And unless I'm in that place inside or outside of love, uh, real love, then then life doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel, it feels like I'm not doing something right. So I try to listen to that place in me. Uh. Everything else is his business. My job is to remember him. His job is to run the show. That's the way I see it. I sing. He sends the people. He makes them feel good. He transmits that loving presence to them. I'm just like a radio. He turns me on, he turns me off. You know, it's like, what does a radio know about music? What does a radio know about God? It's a, it's a machine. You turn it on, you turn it off. That's, that, that's really how I feel. I mean, I know what it looks like. I've watched my videos too, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I know what it looks like, but that's not what it is. That's just what it looks like.
0: What is a life of greatness to you?
1: You know, a life of greatness is the kind of life that all the saints and bodhisattvas live, a life that's dedicated to relieving suffering of everyone, of all beings everywhere, dedicated for that. The reason... A life that the very, very reason to be alive is to help people in a a non-egoistic way, which is very difficult. But there are beings like that, the great saints, the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, the great yogis, the great avatars, they are only here to help us. And that's that's the greatest thing there is. Krishna Das, thank you
0: for Sharing your beautiful music with so many millions of people. It has affected us so unbelievably profoundly.
1: Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it very much.
0: Stay connected by following a Life of Greatness on Instagram at a Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to SarahGrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.